Hello and welcome to Climate Avengers. My name is Alina Folks, your guide and host as we discover how founders and investors are moving the needle on climate change. I'm talking with individuals who are proving that people and planet are compatible with scalable, investable businesses. I know what that means firsthand. My entire career has been in climate, and I've been through a traditional Fortune 200 company, and I've founded a climate tech company, Utility API. I raise capital for it from angels and venture firms, as well as non-dilutive capital. I also worked with Tesla and scaled operations globally. Elon told me good job. Now, I show people how to make money and save the world at the same time. Over the past couple of years, I've been digging into investing in this space and exploring opportunities to deploy capital and invest capital and make that capital grow and also save the planet. And these are the stories that need to be told because it is possible that you can do both. You can make money and save the world at the same time. So you know, by listening here, you are now a Climate Avenger. Avenge the climate with us. Welcome in. Here we have Alex Wright Gladstein, CEO and founder of Sphere. So welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you for having me. Of course. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation. We've known each other for years now as founders in the climate tech space. And go right ahead and just give us a quick introduction of yourself. And then we'll get an overview of Sphere. Sure. So I've been passionate about preventing climate change my whole life and early on decided I wanted to be a serial entrepreneur, helping get technologies out of labs that could have an impact on climate. And so I went to MIT for an MBA, really as an excuse to meet people across campus inventing things, which was amazing. There are over 300 labs at MIT that do energy-related research. At one point, I got a list of all 300 labs and a directive to reach out to all of them as a TA for a class called Energy Ventures. And that was amazing. So I did. And I found that a lot well, uh, about a dozen of the, of the technologies I learned about were a good fit for the class. One stood out to me in particular I was very excited about, and I ended up taking the class. I was just a TA for the summer before, and in the class, I worked on that technology. It came out of the electrical engineering department, Rajiv Ram's lab, and that's what ended up turning into my first company, which is called IR Labs, and we make data centers and supercomputers more energy efficient by using light to move data between chips. And we moved out to California after graduating in 2015, and we've now grown the company to where we have customers like Intel and other big chip companies, and we are helping get their chips communicate using light. And we've raised a number of rounds of financing. Our most recent one was last year, a Series C that was $130 million. And back in 2017, we started offering a... 401k plan to our employees. And I asked our providers for a climate-friendly investment option in the lineup, thinking it was a simple request. And it ended up taking over three years to get a single climate-friendly option in the lineup. And I just couldn't believe how long it took and how hard it was. And I started talking to more and more people in the 401k space to figure out why it was so hard. And I ended up learning that there are a lot of reasons it's hard, but none of them are insurmountable. And 
it was just clear that no one had ever tried to make it really easy before. But meanwhile, over 80% of Americans are worried about climate change, but over 99% of people have no climate-friendly investment option in their retirement savings plans. And it turns out I wasn't alone in really actively looking for something. It turns out there are entire movements of employees at Apple, at Microsoft, at Google, who've been asking for climate-friendly investment options for years, getting petitions signed with thousands of signatures, getting hundreds of emails sent to their benefits teams, and not getting what they want for very similar reasons to why I had trouble getting that as CEO, asking service providers for it. And so... All of that together helped me realize that maybe my next company should not be another deep tech spin out as I thought it would be. And instead, maybe I should try to fix this systems issue where people really can't align their investment behavior with how they feel and what they believe. And that that might have a much bigger impact than spinning any technology out of a lab. And so that's why I decided to start Sphere. Fantastic. And where is Sphere as a company right now? So Sphere, we launched it in 2021, and our first product that we launched is a mutual fund that was designed to check all the boxes when it comes to what 401k fiduciaries, the people who have this very serious legal duty to choose what options are available in a 401k or 403b lineup, uh, 403b is a nonprofit version of a 401k, and they're regulated by very similar rules, and they have very specific things they look for. And so we designed this fund to check all those boxes while also being climate friendly in a very simple way, which is number one, don't invest in fossil fuel companies or lead contributors to deforestation. We think that's kind of table stakes if you're doing a climate friendly fund. And number two, vote our shares for climate action, uh, which we think is really important and something that a lot of people don't think about, which is that everybody who invests in any way in a mutual fund, in an ETF, or directly in stocks has the power to influence change at the companies they invest in. And a lot of people don't realize they have that power to influence some of the biggest companies in our economy. And honestly, the reason they don't is because oftentimes the funds that they invest in aren't giving them the option to exercise that power. The funds that are typically offered in 401ks vote on behalf of their investors the way that they assume their investors would want to vote. But really, that behavior ends up being rubber stamping board recommendations. And what that means is maintaining the status quo and voting against climate action again and again and again, despite over 80% of Americans caring about climate change, over 50% of Americans thinking climate change should be the top priority of the president and Congress. And so these shares are being voted against what people would like their own shares to be voted for. And so we offer a way for people to vote their shares for climate action, even in a 401k where we're voting on their behalf, because we give an assurance that we'll always be voting for climate action when someone invests in our fund. And so that's called the Sphere 500 Climate Fund. And I should mention that none of this is investment advice and you should always talk to a financial advisor before making investment decisions. Perfect. So that's the first product we launched. We also have the Atmosphere platform, which is a technology product that makes it easy for companies and individuals to understand the climate impact of their 401ks. Just for the previous product that is just a 401k available through a company, correct? I'm glad you asked. So anybody can invest in the Sphere 500 Climate Fund. The way, the reason we designed it that way and not as a specific 401k product is because 
we wanted to meet people where they are and make it as easy as possible for them to start having this option. And asking a company to change 401k providers is a really big ask. There's a lot of bureaucracy involved in that, a lot of regulations, a lot of filings. Whereas adding a single fund option to a lineup has a much lower barrier. And so we launched this mutual fund as something that can be added to any existing 401k plan or 403b plan. And what that means is it's also available for anyone to invest in outside of 401ks as well. And investing in it outside of a 401k or 403b, just an individual investment account, also helps grow our availability in 401ks and 403bs because the bigger retirement plans oftentimes like to see a certain level of assets under management in a fund. And so every dollar invested, whether from 401ks or not, really helps our assets grow, which helps make us available in bigger and bigger plans. And for individuals who want this option in their company's 401k, how can they engage with you? What is their process going forward? We support people who are looking for this in their plans every day. So we have a lot of material available on our website to help people make that request. And you can check that out at rsphere.org. That's O-U-R, sphere.org. And you can reach out to us as well. We're at hello at rsphere.org. Set up a time to meet with us through our website as well. If you click on the get started button and really it's about reaching out to, if you're an employee at a larger company, typically it's your benefits manager or your HR manager. If you're a CEO or a senior level executive at a company, you might be just reaching out directly to your 401k provider and asking for a climate-friendly investment option in your plan. And you can suggest the Sphere 500 climate fund is one idea uh, for them to explore. And generally, they will like to explore a couple different options and, and kind of put all those options on the table, look at the returns in the in the histor- history of returns, the the risk profile, the fees, and then make a, a decision as a fiduciary on what fund to add to your plan, given all of that information. And it really just starts with reaching out to the benefits team, which reads out reaches out to the four hundred one k advisor. Hmm. I'll mention one other thing, which is there are two different uh, you know four hundred one ks can get a little complicated pretty fast. There are two different entities usually involved in providing a 401k. There's the platform, which in the industry is known as the record keeper. And that's the company that's holding aside money from your paycheck every two weeks and investing it the way you want. And then there's the advisor. And this is just like a regular personal financial advisor, but they specialize in 401ks and they advise companies on what funds to put in their 401k lineups. And the advisory company is typically different than the platform provider to avoid a conflict of interest there. And that advisor is the biggest influencer in what funds get added to a lineup. So that's really who you want to talk to to get a new option added. Understood. I love that you have those resources. As an employee, I I wouldn't know what to write in an email to one of these people. So I'm glad that you have all of those resources available. Simple copy paste, put the right names in there, send it off, include your friends so they know that there's an like an opportunity there or you have multiple people at the business interested in this green option. Yeah, that's exactly right. We have example emails that you can send to your benefits team or to your 401k provider directly, copy paste. That's right. Perfect. And your background, like you said, is lifelong entrepreneur or ready to be a repeat uh, climate entrepreneur. How did you start 
getting into finance and really develop the knowledge there? Or how did you think about building the team to build this company? I was entirely new to the finance space and I had a lot of learning to do. And so I started by really just trying to figure out what connections do I have at all to anyone who knows anything about finance because they were slim and far and few between. I was encouraged, I have to say, by my experience with IR Labs because I was similar in founding that company and that it's a semiconductor company in the photonic space. And I had zero background or experience in semiconductor or photonics. And it really, I learned that reaching out to anyone I could, whether it was through the MIT alumni network or going to a conference and just standing at the side of the stage when speakers come off stage and asking them my questions right there. And then every conversation I had asking them, who else do you think I should be talking to? So I kind of rinsed and reused those methods here. Uh, it was harder uh, as far as conferences go because it was still the depths of the pandemic and there weren't live events uh, at the beginning when I was trying to learn about 401ks and, and finance in general. How does one start a mutual fund was a big question I had at the beginning. And so it was really grasping at straws, trying to reach out to anyone I knew in the finance industry and then asking them, who should I be talking to? Who should I be talking to? And those chains of introductions led me to some of the smartest people I've met in this space. And we've built really an incredible team of the top experts in climate finance, in 401k and in climate 401k, which there's a very, very small community of climate friendly 401k people. And we now have a lot of them directly on our team, which is really exciting. Wonderful. And it's great to hear that those skills from one company to another, you're still, it's about the curiosity. It's about the initiative. It's about showing up and asking questions. And you don't need to be an expert in any particular technology or sector in order to start having an impact. It's about pushing those boundaries and asking why not have that green option? Why not have that climate friendly 401k in these incumbent institutions? And along those lines, I'm curious about did you receive pushback from maybe investors, maybe other people who said, well, maybe one of the big players is going to come out with one of these and then you're going to be squashed. So why would why are you doing what you're doing when all these other big players could be doing this? Yes, I get asked that question all the time. And to answer that question to you, I probably should make sure we do talk about the Atmosphere platform as well, because that is a, a big point of um, differentiation where it's clear the big players are nowhere near doing that. But as far as the fund products go, it's kind of interesting that the big players haven't done it. And early on, my main question was, where is there a climate-friendly fund that's appropriate for 401ks? This must exist. There's no way it doesn't exist. I just need to find it. And I searched and searched. There's a great resource called fossilfreefunds.org that really just, you can sort and filter and look up all the climate-friendly funds that exist. And it became pretty apparent that they all were pretty expensive if they were truly climate friendly. And fees are a really big sticking point in 401ks because there are a ton of lawsuits in the 401k industry. And the most common type of lawsuit is called an excessive fee lawsuit. They happen all the time. MIT recently settled apparently a three-year-long lawsuit from its own employees for having funds that were too expensive in their 401k. And that's not uncommon. So Oftentimes, these climate-friendly funds that are really expensive are just not appropriate for 401ks, where really they're 
evolving much more towards passive index funds with really low fees. Like the S&P 500 index is extremely popular in retirement plans. And so once I really realized, okay, that doesn't exist, there are passive index funds that brand themselves as ESG or sustainable or climate friendly. But when you look under the covers, I didn't feel that they were truly climate friendly. Either they were heavily invested in the fossil fuel industry or they weren't voting their shares for climate action. And so then I started approaching the creators of truly climate friendly investment options and saying, hey, I really think I can build a social movement. There already is a social movement around climate friendly investing in 401ks. I think I can help amplify that, grow it more. How about you launch a climate friendly fund that has low fees that's an index fund? Because I didn't think I should do this. I thought, okay, they're much better place to do this. They have a lot of experience, use their brand name. But I kept getting these answers of, oh, that's just not our business model. It's not what we do. So it wasn't until then that I realized, okay, I think I have to do this. And that experience was the backdrop for me continuously asking the question, why aren't the big players doing this? And through learning over a couple of years, I've really realized that there are a lot of factors at play and it's going to be a while before any of them start to do truly climate-friendly funds that are low fee. And one of the big factors at play is that the entire public has been moving away from actively managed funds and towards passive index funds because there's so much data showing that past performance has no correlation with future returns. And people are realizing why pay for an expensive fund that's actively managed when I can invest in the economy at large and just get pretty decent returns. And so these active fund managers are being put out of a job, which means that they're looking for what can we do to to keep doing what we do. And ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Investing, is this topic that has just been taking off over the past few years. About a third of global investments are in ESG strategies today, and the financial industry has really seen them as this opportunity to keep charging high fees and justifying active fund management. And sometimes these actively managed funds are truly climate friendly and wonderful. Sometimes it's they're, they're not too different than they'll, they'll take an existing fund and then call it ESG without even changing the underlying strategy sometimes. And that's where there's starting to be a lot of articles written and, and people just pointing out greenwashing. And so there's that whole spectrum. But in general, the industry thinks of climate friendly investing as the place to make money. And so they're just not very interested in making low fee index funds where they don't make too much money in this sector where they know they can really command a premium. And so I think that is one of the biggest dynamics at play, preventing the big players from coming in and offering a low fee fund that's appropriate for 401ks while also being climate friendly. That doesn't even go into a lot of the missteps that some of the big players have done. For example, BlackRock launched something called the Carbon Transition Readiness ETF back in 2021, and it broke all records for number of shares traded in the first day of trading. It it got over a billion dollars invested, which just shows the pent-up demand the public had for climate-friendly ETFs. But then they started to see a lot of backlash because they were invested heavily in the fossil fuel industry, including Exxon and Chevron. (laughs) And people started asking, what what is this ETF transitioning from and to? (laughs) How is this climate friendly at all? And those types of gaffes that the industry, the big players have done over and over again are starting to make the public lose faith in the big players. And I think there's really a lot of space 
for a trusted brand in climate-friendly investing, uh, especially when it comes to uh, the passive index space. And that's really a void that we're filling right now. I also should talk, though, about our technology product, which to me is the much more interesting one. (laughs) We're really just filling a void with the financial products and we'll be launching more. But the Atmosphere tool has two parts. So one is a free tool available to everyone that we are about to launch. So actually, when this episode goes live, it will probably be available. And if you go to the Sphere website, you'll be able to link to it. And you can type in the name of any company in the country or any organization. It could be a nonprofit as well. And see the climate impact of that organization's retirement plan in terms of how much money is invested in fossil fuel companies and removing those investments would, what's the impact that that would have? And so it's a really powerful tool that's really taking advantage of the fact that 401k information is all publicly available. It's in these filings though, that are pretty hard to digest. And so we're taking that information and helping people really understand the climate impact of their 401ks. And so that'll be free, publicly available to everyone. And I think it will really help people arm themselves when they're reaching out to their benefits teams or their 401k providers and say, look, here's the state of our retirement plan today and we can do better. And then the tool that we're working on right now, which we call the Atmosphere Enterprise, is a newer tool that really is becoming relevant against the backdrop of some updates to the greenhouse gas protocol that are taking place right now. So the greenhouse gas protocol provides the gold standard guidelines on how companies should measure their emissions. So sustainability teams at companies, when they're measuring their scope one, scope two, scope three emissions, it's the greenhouse gas protocol that gives those guidelines on what the definition of scope one and two and three are, whether it's scope one, the direct emissions, or scope two, emissions from the electricity delivered to facilities, or scope three, which is the emissions of suppliers or the emissions of customers in using the product. Right now, the greenhouse gas protocol has no mention of the financial supply chain. So sustainability teams are measuring the emissions of a factory that manufactures a component that goes into their product, but they're not measuring the emissions of the bank account where they hold their cash or of their 401k plan or pension plan. And the greenhouse gas protocol is getting updated for the first time since it was created in 2011. And it's widely expected that the new version will start to include the financial supply chain, including 401ks. So for the first time, sustainability teams will start measuring the emissions of their 401ks, which will be a really big deal because Mercer came out with a study in September measuring the 401k emissions of S&P 500 companies. And on average, their 401k emissions are 33 times higher than the direct emissions of the companies themselves. So that number is staggering and it's going to become an area of focus of sustainability teams once they do start measuring this stuff. And so our tool, the Atmosphere Enterprise, will make it easy for sustainability teams to understand the emissions of their 401ks. And more importantly, it will help them understand how to improve them. So it will really lay out in terms of both emissions and that fiduciary responsibility, returns, volatility, risk, fees, it will show here are some options that you should be considering for improving the emissions of your 401k plan so that they can go then have an informed conversation with the key stakeholders and improve their reported emissions as a company. And as far as impact, can you talk a little bit just about the size 
of these funds and how massive it is and why it matters to start moving it now. You know, Kelpers tends to be the retirement fund tossed around in terms of these conversations. There's divest from fossil fuels or divest initiatives from endowment funds. How big of a problem is this? And when you move this money, what is that impact going to be? The amount of money is enormous. And a lot of entities have already started to divest from fossil fuels. This has been a movement that's been going on for over a decade, and it's been an incredibly powerful movement, especially on university campuses. And so, for example, the University of California system has already divested its endowment. It has already actually divested its retirement plan as well. So the funds that it invests in for its endowment are now available for its uh, pension fund and 401k type plan, which which is super exciting. It's still not available in traditional 401ks. The California regulations for public entities are a little bit different than the, the nationwide regulations on 401ks and 403bs. And so it's really the sole industry that's lagging behind. And for some sense of scale, the Apple, Microsoft, and Google 401k plans each have tens of billions of dollars invested in them. And on average, the economy at large right now, for example, if you look at an S&P 500 fund that's broadly invested across the economy, it's about 10% invested in fossil fuel companies. And so that means for a $10 billion plan, $1 billion is invested in fossil fuels. Now that's a broad generalization, but it gives you a sense of the scale. It means if you work at one of these big companies and you can help move that that movement to get a climate-friendly option available in the plan and then help educate your colleagues that this, this option is now available, you can be responsible for moving a billion dollars out of the fossil fuel industry. And that ability to have an impact is really enormous. And I think that's why we've seen such motivated social movements within some of these companies already. It's because it's a way for people to have really an outsized impact within their own direct spheres of influence. And, and to give a sense for how much of an impact that has for the fossil fuel industry, it turns out that the retirement investing industry is one of the last sources of capital for the fossil fuel industry, where mm -hmm. not just endowments, but also wealthy individuals, high net worth individuals, the, the Rockefeller family, which made their money from Standard Oil, which is the company that got broken apart because it was too much of a monopoly into Exxon and Chevron and pretty much every U.S. Uh, oil company. The descendants of J.D. Rockefeller have mostly already divested their investments from the fossil fuel industry that made them their money and their inheritance. And so that's just one example of how so many wealthy individuals, family offices, endowments are moving out of the industry. And that means actually a good chunk of the capital that's left to the fossil fuel industry is coming from retirement plans. Uh, right now, our calculations are that about a third of the assets invested in the stock market in these companies comes just from U.S. retirement investors. And so it can have a massive impact to start to give people the option to do otherwise. And it's not only an impact on the fossil fuel company's ability to finance what they do, but it's also a massive impact for retirement savers who are honestly risking their money by investing it in this industry where the writing is honestly on the wall. People are moving to electric cars. Solar and wind and batteries combined are less expensive than fossil fuel generation for the power grid. 
And this is an industry in decline. And right now, retirement savers are being forced to invest in this industry that has some spikes in value. For example, when Russia invades Ukraine, it, it does go up in value. But over the long term, it's definitely in decline. And the long term view is the view that retirement savers care about because we are investing for the long term. So I'd like to loop back to the beginning. For you, why did you start thinking and caring about climate? Oh, it goes way back. And really, I I owe it to my seventh grade science teacher, Mr. Otis, who was incredible and taught us about environmentalism and saving the rainforest was a big theme of his classes. And that was when I first learned about climate change and I became an environmentalist through and through. I couldn't stop caring about that. And that was my mission from then on. I was organizing events to save the rainforest throughout high school. And I was really known as the environmentalist girl geek at my high school. And then when I went to college, I went to Tufts, uh, which I was attracted to because they had one of the oldest programs uh, in the environment. And it was fantastic. And in my first year, there was this special one-time year-long class. They called it a symposium. Mm -hmm. uh, the acronym they had for it was EPIC. And it was on the topic of oil and water. And that experience of that class where they brought in speakers from around the world to really educate us on everything having to do with oil and water really crystallized for me how exciting clean energy is in particular and the solutions to climate change. Because I had had some experiences in high school, especially with Saving the Rainforest campaigns, where it felt a lot of the time like it was me against the world. It was either businesses get to make money or we get to save the rainforest and it was pitting one against the other in a constant fight. And with clean energy, I realized we could have these win-win situations where people get to make money and businesses get to grow and do well while we're also doing well for the planet. And I just loved being able to find those win-win situations. And it really drew me in specifically to climate tech, which back then we were still calling it clean tech. And I wanted to continue those conversations. So I, I co-founded the Tufts Energy Club and annual energy conference and learned so much through continuing to have speakers come to campus and do research projects around the globe and was trying to figure out what I wanted to do in climate to have an impact. And in high school, I had done internships in, in labs at the uh, Scripps Institute of Oceanography in San Diego. And I, cause I thought I would be a scientist, but actually doing that work made me realize mm, lab work isn't really for me. Uh, in college, I did an internship in DC thinking policy is so important for, for influencing change. But then I realized uh, politics isn't really for me. Uh, and I, I eventually did an internship at a VC firm in New York called Lux Capital that was focused on nanotech, which was a big buzzword at the time. And I met someone there who was an LP in the fund and was really just a hero to the four co-founders of Lux. And his name was Larry Bach. And he had gone around to labs asking everyone who he could talk to, who's the smartest person you know in nanotech? And finding, he ended up founding 20 different companies. He took 14 of those companies public. And he was the one who made me realize, wow, serial entrepreneurship and, and specifically deep tech serial entrepreneurship can be a career. 
it can be a job description. And that's incredible. And I want to do that for climate tech. So he was the one who really made me realize that I want to be a serial entrepreneur for life. And uh, he was the one who who I called when I uh, when I after I applied to a few business schools, I was like, should I be going to Berkeley or should I be going to MIT? Which one's better? And he was like, MIT is the place to go. <laughs> and so, yeah, he, he's just been an incredible mentor to me throughout. It's amazing to hear the, I, I interpret it as uh, bumper bowling. You like head in one direction until you realize it's time to like bump over. Right. So I, I went through that policy side of things too. And it's just amazing to hear the journeys of people who have, tried so many other things looking for how to have the biggest impact on climate. And they arrive here in climate tech with scalable solutions. And they're able to magnify their impact so much by growing these technologies that are ready to be deployed. Thank you for sharing that as well. It's, it's um, Those are the stories I want to tell with this podcast. So thank you. <laughs> Yeah, my pleasure. And it's funny because my first company is very much a deep tech company. My second one, the technology is this platform, is this software that we're building. And it's so different than the IR Labs technology, which has over 100 patents. But I find it to be equally valuable because when it comes down to it, it's about systems change. And the IR Labs breakthrough has the potential to change the entire systems of computing, the entire semiconductor industry. And likewise, the 401k system is one that's broken right now, and that's just not serving us and our needs. And the Atmosphere platform is a technology that has the power to really change that system and help people understand how to change 401ks to really serve our needs for this century. So this Podcast is called Climate Avengers because Climate Avengers is a investment group with a syndicate and rolling fund. And this podcast is out there to encourage more people to found climate tech companies that we can invest in very shamelessly. That way we can empower them. And also, I want to make sure that we're handing them the keys so they feel enabled to do that. And so one part of it that I feel like a lot of people are scared about or view as risky is the capital raising process. And you've done hard tech, deep tech, and you are in more of the fintech realm as well. So you have like climate tech plus the financial technology side of things. So you have access to kind of like a different bucket of capital as well. But could you talk about that fundraising process and even get into some of the nitty gritty of that as well? Yeah. Yeah. Fundraising is scary. I agree. And you're really putting yourself out there. And I think I was equipped for a lot of what to expect because I listened to a lot of other founders tell their stories. I got that MBA at MIT. I took every entrepreneurship class that was available. Instead of sales, I took entrepreneurial sales. Instead of finance, I took entrepreneurial finance and everything was entrepreneurial focused. And I got a lot of stories from real founders on what it's like and hearing these stories of pitching over a hundred times and hearing over a hundred no's before getting a single yes. And so when I started fundraising for IR Labs, that was what I expected. And I think going in with that expectation helped me be resilient to hearing a lot of no's, which I just like everyone else heard over a hundred no's. And it continued to be true really for, for subsequent rounds as well. But it was especially hard for the first round. That was our seed round. We ended up raising two and a half million led by Founders Fund. And 
all three of us as full-time co-founders were new to the semiconductor industry. We were trying to figure out where's that product market fit? What is the product that we're making with this technology breakthrough? And we were trying to meet people in the semiconductor industry. We had just moved out to California. We were in the heart of Silicon Valley and just trying to make as many connections as we could. As we were going through that process, we were also fundraising. And so that was tough, especially because back in 2016, especially the first half of 2016, no one was investing in semiconductor. It was all about software. It was all about SaaS. There had been the clean tech 1.0 wave, which was very decisively over and climate tech was not yet in. And there had been a little bit of a hardware interest in the years prior, but it had really kind of, it was starting to peter out as well. And so people, even when I was, I was looking up who are the investors who have experience in semiconductor? Because those are the types of people we want to add to our board and have on our side. And we would have them literally just tell us, oh yeah, I know I made my money in semiconductor, but I don't invest in semiconductor. I, don't, I, don't, I won't touch that with a 10 foot pole was pretty much what they were telling us. And that was really tough to hear. And I felt really fortunate actually to meet the folks at Founders Fund, as well as a couple other. We ended up actually getting three term sheets. One of the pieces of advice I got was just try to get one term sheet, try to get any term sheet. And once you get one, it'll create this sense of FOMO, fear of missing out, and then you'll be able to get others to move as well. And that absolutely worked for us for that first round. There was somebody actually based in China who had been an electrical engineer and was a super fan of my co-founder, Chen Sun, who was one of the lead authors on this paper that was published in Nature that uh, shared the, the results of the first processor to communicate using light. And he had then gone into venture investing and reached out to us. And we were very hesitant about taking foreign capital because our technology came out of 10 years of DARPA funding, $20 million of DARPA funding into this research. And there was definitely a US focus to the company. And regardless, I talked to him. I got him excited about the, about the company and his was the first term sheet we got. And then letting the other folks we had been talking to know that we had a term sheet, we'd be making a decision soon, ended up resulting in two more term sheets. And we ended up taking the one from Founders Fund, who in general, I think are known for being proud contrarians, being different from others. They don't like to follow trends. They like to do their own thing. And and I really appreciated that as an early stage company in semiconductor and in photonics in a field that and and with a technology that was so different than anything that ex had existed before, they really took the time to understand it and get excited about it and and invest. And so that was the experience with the first round. I will tell you things really changed. We closed that round in May of 2016. In November of 2016, I believe it was, a company called Nirvana, which made an AI chip, uh, got acquired by Intel for a few hundred million dollars. And all of a sudden, Semiconductor was back in and I was literally getting investors reaching out to me saying, oh, we really want to get into the semiconductor space. Will you please talk to us? And so the tides really changed and, and things have changed over time. But the venture industry is a very trend focused one, uh, usually, though there are exceptions to that rule. And so... What I have found is that being able to plug into some of those trends, you know, AI really took off after that. And so 
presenting the impact that our technology would have on AI computing systems was was an important way to then get our Series A funding, which was $24 million round, and really plugging into that the AI craze, you could call it, really helped us out. So those are some of the experiences we had from fundraising. Could you talk about some of the milestones that you felt like you needed to hit or you did hit in order to go from that seed to that A? You know, it's so funny to talk about milestones because they're so important to investors. They really matter. But also for a deep tech company like IR Labs, taking the technology from lab demonstration to having the massive impact on the world that it can have in, in really being incorporated in every data center is a very, very long road because the technology has to be integrated with the technologies of very large companies that move slowly and have long product development timelines like Intel or NVIDIA or HPE, some of these biggest companies out there. And so really it was about trying to figure out what milestones can we show when we know that the product development timelines are really slow for these companies? And what ended up really mattering, especially for these early rounds, was finding champions in these companies who were just willing to get on the phone and talk to investors and share their excitement about what we were doing. And it turned out it didn't actually matter whether they were decision makers at a company it didn't matter whether they had signed a letter of interest or signed anything at all, whether there was any commitment to money to pay for any of our products. It really just for the first couple of rounds, it was having people who are deep in the design of chips and in the design of computing systems, talking about how important our technology was to enable them to keep doing their jobs. So really customer testimonial was everything for us. And we did also put agreements in place over time where they were these escalating agreements. So we would start with a paper study where our engineers and their engineers would work together to hypothetically look at what type of system we could build together. And if we were successful with that, it would trigger a milestone, which we would then move on to sampling chips to them so they could test out our chips and see if they behaved the way we had told them they would behave. And these you know, slowly escalating agreements with different milestones kicking in that really uh, led us to eventually being included in, in product designs. It seems like you were very honest and open in these early conversations or just in any of your conversations with IR where you didn't posture and say, yes, we have all the technology. It was more, this is where we are, where we are raising capital. Do you mind talking to our investors? And it's about being transparent about that. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I think it's just really important to build trust with whoever you're working with, right? Whether it is customers, potential customers or potential investors, and they get it. They understand that you're a startup company. And I think they would be able to see through if you try to present yourself as anything but what you are. I also think it really helps that we had a very real technology breakthrough that was solving an enormous problem of the semiconductor industry as a whole. Gordon Moore the guy, the, the co-founder of Intel who predicted Moore's law, which was this law that chips would double in computing capacity every two years, going to this exponential growth in computing power. In the paper where he predicted that, it's actually really short. It's about three pages. You can read it really easily. At the very end, he wrote, and when this exponential growth in computing power starts to slow down, it will become increasingly important to focus on how we move data between chips. 
And we will have to build these larger systems that behave like a single chip where we can compose them. It's called composability of architecture, where you have pools of processors, pools of memory, and then these super highways of data in between them. And that will be how we continue to grow computing power beyond the end of Moore's law. So he predicted this problem that then did become a problem over the past decade and that my brilliant co-founders amazingly <laughs> invented a solution to when no one else had. And so it's this problem that was well known and established in the industry and people had struggled to find a solution. And it, it definitely made it easier to have a real solution to a real problem. And when people dove in, they could understand that it was a real solution and get excited about that. So yeah, honesty, it's true. Uh, is important, but it also helps to have a, a real technology that's transformative. And I'm just so grateful to have met my co-founders when I did. What are you excited about for climate tech right now? I am just so excited about the ways that different founders and companies are really looking at the systems change issues and how we can change the systems we live in. Because I really believe there's only so much we can do as individuals, buying an electric car, if you can afford it, or going vegan or not flying and really the systems that we live in need to change. They need to catch up where, with, with where public opinion is today. Uh, one company I learned about recently through the What It Takes podcast with Emily Kirsch uh, was uh, a company called Sublime Systems. The CEO, Leah Ellis, spoke and I was just so excited. What they're doing is they're making a green cement because the construction industry creates an absurd level of emissions and it is a real industry that we need to clean up if we want to be able to live in uh, in the world we want to live in. And it's such a systems change issue. And I think part of why I loved it was because the founder reminded me of me a little bit. <laughs> she met her co-founder at MIT. She was a postdoc in Yetman Chang's lab, but I loved how different this was for her and for him. They both came from battery background mm -hmm. and they thought, oh, but there is this cement issue. What if we apply some of what we know to cement instead of batteries and see if something can happen there? And so it's been a total new entry into an industry she didn't know anything about for her. And it sounds like she's learned a ton about the industry and is making really fantastic inroads. And I'm very excited about the potential for that company. And it's just one example. I know the same thing is happening with steel, another industry that has huge amounts of emissions. I love the ideas of geothermal and especially of retraining folks who have their backgrounds in the petrochemicals industry to use those same skills to make geothermal possible. Uh, the idea of doing something similar for hydrogen, I also love. And so it's, it's really the systems change that gets me excited. And there are so many creative people all over the world working on that systems change. It's a very exciting time to be alive. What other resources do you want to share with this community, whether it's entrepreneurship related, climate related? What are some of the things that you have found useful one thing I recommend to people a lot is a book called All We Can Save. And before I go into what it is, I will tell you why. And it's that I find myself every so often having conversations with people who are asking the question of how do we make these trade-offs if we need to destroy communities and nature to mine minerals, to be able to make batteries, to save the climate, 
how do we make those decisions on whether we're screwing over indigenous populations versus, you know, screwing over the planet and the climate and neither one is a good choice, but sometimes we have to make trade-offs and do bad things for the overall good. And I really learned a lot from this book, All We Can Save, about how we actually maybe don't have to make those trade-offs and how maybe it is possible to really shift how we behave as a human community and take better care of each other and are more inclusive in how we create this future we want to create for ourselves. And maybe by not making those trade-offs and paying attention to, yes, the health of communities and the health of the, the planet can actually support each other and result in better scenarios all in all. And it was just really a, a mindset shift for me in reading this book. Uh, so it's called All We Can Save. It's edited by Ayana Elizabeth Johnson and Catherine Wilkinson. They're both PhDs with incredible backgrounds in climate-related science. And it's a compilation of essays by women who have had these incredible wins and experiences and thoughts and insights on climate change. And it's so inspirational to hear about the successes in some of these essays. It's interspersed with poetry that is just so helpful when you're thinking about these big issues to be able to take a little break and read a beautiful poem by someone directly, you know, relevant to what you've just read. It's just a beautifully put together book. And I highly recommend it to everyone I talk to. I also highly recommend the audiobook because the people they have reading it, it's Julia Lewis-Dreyfus is reading some of these chapters. Oh. It's amazing. Oh, I love that. Yes. And so sometimes it's the author <laughs> reading it. That. Like Leia Stokes is on there reading her chapter, but there's others that, and it's like, this love is Leah amazing. Stokes. So um, go pick up the book, see if your library has it. I read, I listened to it via Libby and I was actually listening to it while there was a red tide in Tampa Bay in St. Pete. And I was like surrounded by floating dead fish and snakes and it was awful and it was just this this beacon of light and joy to be listening to all we can save it i i can't say enough about it either it's one of my top four books i recommend to people um in this space and the other thing i really valued about it and you mentioned this was really just about the diversity of voices that you hear there because a lot of the experts called in on climate tend to look similar and so hearing about so many different types of people engaging on climate and the social justice of climate was extraordinary. The other part of it is that we can get so stuck in our heads with with climate solutions, especially with the tech side or the financial side. And this book really draws back into ourselves and it's a bit more from the heart. And climate change can be really scary. It can be anxiety producing. And as founders, we think about the impact that we are having on climate change on a daily basis. It's literally for me, it's like, what is the greatest impact I can have on climate change on a daily basis? So when I'm surrounded by a climate crisis, like a red tide or a wildfire, and I'm breathing that smoke, it's scary. And to be able to know that there's all these voices and these people from so many backgrounds working on it, you don't feel alone anymore. And I think that's really important when working or being conscious of climate. It's like getting a warm hug from some of the most inspirational people you've ever heard of. It's it's the best. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. So along those lines, are there other things that you do to really stay grounded and sometimes sane in light of uh, climate doom? 
taking care of myself for sure. And this is something that I think is somehow controversial in the world of especially Silicon Valley entrepreneurship, definitely U.S., work culture in general is you have to work so hard. You have to give up everything if you want to be successful in your career. And I grew up in the U.S., but I also grew up a lot of the time in France because my mom is French and they have an extremely different work culture. They value time around the table, just having conversations with friends. They value life outside of work in a way that the U.S. culture, in my experience, does not. And so I've experience both of those approaches to life. And as a result, I think I do, I try to do a good job of prioritizing my friends on the weekends, seeing friends uh, in the evening, spending time with my family and picking up the phone and calling old friends and staying updated and not getting so drawn into my work that I lose out on all of that. So just that human connection is is super important to me to staying grounded because there are so many ups and downs on the entrepreneurial journey. And it's a long game. It's not something that we're going to win if we just pull enough all-nighters in a row because then we're going to just burnout and there's too much burnout in this field. So we have to take care of ourselves every day. So that human connection and then also just physically taking care of myself. So I know that I feel better when I work out. So I try to remember to go for a run every day. Running is just for me the easiest way to get a quick workout in. Even when I don't have enough time, I can even go out for five minutes. I live in a hilly area, so I can charge up a hill quickly if that's the only thing I have time for. But just making the time for that every single day really, really helps me keep some of my sanity and happiness and optimism in life. And uh, I think that optimism is is really important in the face of, of what we're fighting against. What else would you want to talk about here on this podcast. Something we haven't really gone into is the politics of what we're doing at Sphere. And it has somehow become incredibly politicized. Earlier this year, President Biden did his first veto in the history of his presidency. And it was on the topic of allowing climate-friendly investment options in 401ks. The fossil fuel lobby, in short, was successful enough in lobbying not just every Republican senator and House member, but also a few Democrats. So they got a law passed to prevent us from being able to have the option to avoid investing in Exxon and Chevron, to require us to make those investments, which are bad for our long-term savings, bad for the planet. They somehow got that passed. And Biden had to use his veto power to veto that so that we can still have the option to invest in a climate-friendly way in our retirement plans. And it just shows how scared I think the fossil fuel industry is of the movement to invest in climate-friendly ways, and they realize how dependent they are on retirement plans as a source of capital. And one thing that has been a little bit frustrating to me has been how willing to wade into the politics, the Republican side, I guess we could call it, there's no other name for it. Capital R Republicans are very willing to wade into the politics of climate-friendly investing. They've created an entire campaign around woke capitalism. They've really done an incredible mm. job of controlling the narrative around you either choose financial returns or you choose climate-friendly investing, where 
in reality, there is a massive amount of data that shows that investing in a climate-friendly way actually results in better returns more often than not. And so a frustration of mine has been how unwilling a lot of the climate community has been to wade in to the messy political conversation. And I get it. I told you how when I did an internship in DC, I realized politics isn't for me. But I think I'm getting to a point where I realize at a certain point, politics is unavoidable because the reality is the systems we live in are highly, highly influenced by policies. And so much of the climate community is focused on technology, on deep tech and I get it. I'm one of them, right? I I have spent so much of my life focusing on the technology and seeing technology as the tool that can save us all. But now I'm realizing there's more to it than that. And we need a regulatory environment that supports the change that we need to see at a speed and scale that's unprecedented. And so I would encourage everyone to pay attention to the politics and to think about investing things that might be a little bit politically scary because of what an impact it can have. And especially when the other side, for example, Peter Thiel, one of the founders of Founders Fund, which led that first investment in IR Labs, he recently invested in a company called Strive Asset Management, which runs an ETF with the ticker DRLL Drill, literally just invest in the fossil fuel industry. It's been tough to find a counterweight to the Peter Thiel types who are willing to wade into that woke capitalism, anti-ESG debate. Peter Thiel is the consummate contrarian. It makes a lot of sense from his perspective that he's doing this, but it shouldn't be hard to find somebody who cares about climate change and who's willing to be the counterbalance. And it has been hard to find that. And I think it's because so many of us are focused on technology solutions and shying away from the more political topics. And so that is something that I would love to see change and love to see people be more open to because we are on the right side of history. And there really isn't anything to be scared of. At the end of the day, we have to be successful. That's something I I wanted to put out there. And our last question is, what can our listeners do to support you and the climate. If you know anyone who works in sustainability at a big company or works at any company that cares about sustainability, tell them how the greenhouse gas protocol is changing. People are going to start paying attention to their retirement plans to 401ks and those emissions and tell them about Sphere and our atmosphere platform, which can help make it easy for them to reduce the emissions associated with their 401ks. And never hesitate to reach out if you're looking to improve your company's 401k. We are here to help. And that's what we care most about. So we're looking forward to talking to you. Thank you, Alex. It was great to have you on. So wonderful being on. Thanks so much for having me, Elena. Thank you for joining me. By gaining this knowledge, you are now a Climate Avenger. As we all know, knowledge is power, so avenge the climate with us. Let's get the word out. Rate, review, subscribe, so others can find this podcast. We are new, so every share is even more important. Help us grow and share it with the communities that you're a member of, whether it's climate or investing Slack groups, LinkedIn groups, And if you don't mind, share it with a friend or colleague so they can also join us in avenging the climate, especially if they work in climate, are a climate entrepreneur, or an angel investor. If you are an accredited investor, join our rolling fund and syndicate on AngelList. 
is you have questions or want to talk with us, email team at climateavengers.com and Kyle or I will respond. Put your money where your values are. Make money and save the world at the same time. Let's get more capital into climate. To find out more about Climate Avengers, head over to resourcelabs.co slash climateavengers and subscribe to stay updated with new episodes and resources. Until next time, avenge on.